Welcome to Equipping the Body. I'm Dr. Brad Starnes, and today we're continuing our walk through the book of Luke. And uh, we've come today to a very familiar narrative in the Gospels. It is the story of Christ converting the cripple at Capernaum. This story is found in Mark chapter 2. It's found in Matthew chapter 9. And then in our text today, Luke 5, 17 through 26. I doubt anyone who's listening has not at least heard one sermon on this narrative in your lifetime, if you've been around a church for any length of time. It is, of course, the story of the crippled man who was lowered through the roof by his four friends, healed by Jesus, and so on. Unfortunately, however, this story is often allegorized to the point that we are to tear the roof off for Jesus for evangelism and that's kind of how I've heard this text preached more often than not Uh, but I remind you that's not the point of the text in fact Jesus himself says in the narrative that the reason he's doing these things is so that the Pharisees would know that he can forgive sins in other words know that he is God and so the point of the story is not the four friends the point of the story is Jesus now I'm not going to sit here and tell you that that's not a good side application, just a little icing on the cake. Hey, these guys took their friend to Jesus. We ought to take our friend. Of course. But that is not the point of this narrative. And there are some passages, many passages in scriptures that uh, can become allegorical and teach spiritual lessons. Sure, absolutely. But the plain historical context must be addressed to find the actual meaning of the text. And let me say that to say this. The text can never mean what it has never meant. Okay? So all that to be saying, you know the story. Um, And at the end of the story, we find this statement, and I want to go ahead and throw it at you now. The people that watch the healing say, we have seen strange things today. Now, that word translated strange comes from the Greek word where we get our word paradox, something that is impossible, something that cannot be done. And yet, that's how they describe what they saw Jesus do. Why? Because crippled people don't get up and walk after somebody tells them to. (laughs) That's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So that's just a little extra for you. Now, Luke 5, 17 through 26, I want to tell you the story when Christ converts the cripple at Capernaum. Let's read our text, Luke 5, 17 through 26. Now it happened on a certain day as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come out of every town, Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Then behold, men brought on a bed a man who was paralyzed, whom they sought to bring in and lay before him. And when they could not find how they might bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the housetop and let him down with his bed through the tiling into the midst before Jesus. When he saw their faith, he said to them, Man, Your sins are forgiven. And the scribes and Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, 
He answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has the power on earth to forgive sins, but that you may know. I'm doing this so that you will know this. Pay attention to that phrase. Anyways, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Immediately he rose up before them, took up what he had been lying on, and departed to his own house, glorifying God. And they were all amazed, and they glorified God, and were filled with fear, saying, We have seen strange things today. We have seen strange things today. Christ converts the cripple at Capernaum. Now we're going to see this story divided into four scenes. Scene number one, the context of the cripple's conversion. You've always got to look at the context, ladies and gentlemen. Where did this happen? Who was there? When did it happen? Uh, what was going on when it happened? I mean, you look at those things in order to get the proper interpretation of not just this text, but any text. So number one, the context of the cripple's conversion. Number two, the compassionate comrades of the cripple. Number three, the crucial question concerning Christ. And number four, the, the, the climax, the ending, the, the big finale, the conversion of the cripple. Let's start with number one, verse 17, the context of the cripple's conversion. As with all good stories, some context is helpful. Where and when did these events transpire? To remind you in our narrative, and I'm referring to the entire narrative of Luke, Jesus has already called his first four followers, Simon, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. He's already been baptized by John the Baptist, and he's already triumphed over temptation at the hands of Satan in the Judea wilderness known as Jershimon. Now he is beginning to preach in the public square and the synagogue. So we find Jesus preaching and teaching as he travels. Now as to the context of the cripple's conversion, verse 17, note number one, the place. Well, when you're considering context, you need to know where, the place. Mark tells us when reading the same miracle, when recalling the same miracle, that it took place in Capernaum. So Luke doesn't tell us this happened in Capernaum, but Mark does. They're describing the same event. And so, as I've said more than once, the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. Scripture must be measured with Scripture. So Mark fills in the gaps. Now, so the place when we consider the context of the cripple's conversion. It was Capernaum, as Mark records writing this same story. And again, he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Now, not only the place, but consider the people. The people. Who were there? Who was there, rather? We are introduced to some characters. Luke names two groups as far as setting the context, he names the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Now, the Pharisees were a religio-political party in that day. They were the far right, as it were. They, they believed the entire Old Testament was inspired in an era, and that was good. But here came the problem. They added, they added their own rules and regulations on top of the scripture. They believed the scripture, that's great, but then they added to it. And that was the problem. They were legalists. 
they produced legalism. They came up with their own rules and regulations in addition and sometimes contradiction to what God said. And then they took those rules and regulations that they made up and tried to force everybody else to follow them and then would go as far as to say this. Basically, if you don't follow our rules and regulations, you're breaking God's rules and regulations. Really, in a way, they were playing God. So the the Pharisees, then you have the teachers of the law, the teachers of the law, which we know as the scribes. Now, the scribes were the professional scholars of that day. These were not dummies, okay? If you were a scribe, your job, literally your job, was to make perfect word-for-word copies of copies of the Old Testament Scripture. They spent hours and hours and hours making per- And if you messed up, you had to start over. So, so I'm just using this as an example. Let's say that you were a scribe and your duty that day was Genesis, then they would sit down and make a perfect copy of Genesis. Of course, they wouldn't call it Genesis. They'd call it the books of Moses or the Torah, but that's, or Pentateuch, rather. That's beside the point. They had, they had to be smart. And not only was their job to make perfect copies, but their job was to study, to study the Scripture, to interpret the Scripture, to explain the Scripture. Um, they were the professional teachers. Now, they were not clergy in the sense of what we have today, because we know the synagogue had no official clergy, uh, but rather they would be reading, they would be praying, and then somebody would be called on to speak who was a rabbi or well-known teacher in the community. So the officer of pastor and deacon didn't exist at this time is what I'm getting at, but nevertheless, they were smart cookies. These were the people, as we consider the context. These were the characters described by Luke. Now, Something you need to realize about these guys. Both the Pharisees and the scribes desired the Messiah to come. They believed the Messiah was coming. However, their view of a Messiah was going to be one who was going to come through the line of David, which Jesus did, by the way, and set up a military powerhouse, a kingdom much like the kingdom of David, whip the Romans, uh, conquer the world, and put Israel back on top of the map as a uh, military political powerhouse. And that's not what God sent them. God sent them a bleeding, suffering servant to save them from something far worse than Rome, their sins. And so the people, now I don't want to rush, but I do want to say this in closing, uh, in closing, in closing of this point that the Pharisees and the scribes are often pictured together because even though Pharisee was technically like a political party, uh, every scribe was a Pharisee, okay, but not every Pharisee was a scribe, okay, and we know that. Now, there's other things that I could go into that, but I, I really don't have the time. And so as we consider the context of the cripple's conversion, we saw the place, Capernaum, the people, the scribes and the Pharisees. Number three, the power. Not only the place and the people, but the power. What do I mean by that? Well, if you keep reading in the text, the Bible says that the power of the Lord was present to heal them. What an odd statement for one to give when he's describing the scene of a story, yet it plays a crucial role in understanding the context. Because everywhere Jesus went, 
the power of the Lord was with him because he is the Lord. He is God. I and the Father are one that Jesus himself said. Okay. So the power of the Lord was present with them to heal them. Now keep in mind that as Jesus heals this crippled man, he does so in claiming to be God because he says, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees say, only God can do that. And he says, yeah, watch this. Get up and walk. So it's very important. I'm not going to say any more than that, but it's very important to understand that nothing in the Bible is an accident. Luke didn't just accidentally say, oh, yeah, the power of God was there. No, 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 no. That's, that's there for a very specific reason. So we have the context of the cripple's conversion, the place, the people, the power. Secondly, the compassionate comrades of the cripple. The Bible tells us he had some friends. Now, we are introduced to some other characters. We find a man who is crippled, yet he is surrounded by compassionate comrades. Luke writes, Then behold, men brought on a bed a man who was paralyzed, whom they sought to bring in and lay before him. And when they could not find how they might bring him in, because of the crowd, they went up on the housetop and let him down with his bed through the tiling into the midst before Jesus. Now, why do I call them the compassionate comrades? Am I just trying to make rhymes? No. I want you to note a few reasons. Number one, their devotion. They were devoted to their friend. There was a sense of loyalty and responsibility towards the man from these four friends. They felt it their charge to bring him to Jesus. Now, here comes that side application we talked about. I wish that we had devotion to our lost friends and family members that we realized as the Bible teaches per the Great Commission that we have a charge, a responsibility to bring them to Jesus through evangelism and discipleship. And so these were compassionate comrades, friend, because of their devotion to bring him to Jesus. Number two, their dilemma. They had a dilemma. Their devotion would face their dilemma. They could not get him to Jesus through the door. Why? Well, the door was blocked. There was too many people. Now, to understand the Palestinian house, let me tell you a little bit about them. Palestinian houses in ancient times, they were flat-roofed. They had the slightest of inclines just enough to cause rainwater to run off. It was comprised, the roof, of cross beams distanced very shortly apart, and the gaps between the beams were stuffed with sticks, mud, twigs, grass, etc., a mortar, if you will. Now, it was designed to be waterproof. However, it was very easy to break apart and remove. Why is that? Because, as Barclay notes for us, that they designed the roofs this way because they would move stuff through the roofs. Um, in fact, in that day, it was very common to move the, if somebody died and the coffin would be brought in and out through the roof. And so understand their dilemma. They're devoted to bring to the Lord, but they're facing a dilemma. And there are dilemmas that would, that would um, what's the word I'm looking for, keep us from bringing people to Jesus. And a lot of times these dilemmas are things that we ourselves can help. For example, if I'm trying to bring somebody to Jesus, but I have a terrible attitude and I live like the devil and don't go to church myself, it's probably not going to do a lot of, be very effective if I go and tell them they need Jesus because they're probably going to respond and say, looks like you need Jesus. And so there's dilemmas that are 
our own fault, and then there's dilemmas that aren't our fault. Maybe you're trying to bring somebody to Jesus, and their childhood was terrible, and they have this trauma, and Jesus can deal with those things, but it does present somewhat of a dilemma. Now, I want to move past that because this isn't an allegory, but we see their devotion, their dilemma, but finally, note this, their determination. Now we've come to something here. They are determined. They don't give up. Oh, no. They're devoted to their friend. They face a dilemma, and yet they are determined. That's why I called them the compassionate comrades of the crippled. Man, they were devoted, and they weren't going to let a dilemma stop them because they were determined. They said, if we can't go in through the door, we'll go in through the roof, but we're going to do what it takes to get our friend to Jesus. We must draw a principle from these men, and that's this. The greatest thing you can do for a friend is bring them to Jesus. The most compassionate thing you can do for anybody is tell them the truth of the gospel in light of the person and work of Jesus Christ. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, the nicest thing that could be said about these men was they brought their friend to Jesus. And the greatest thing, the greatest thing that can be said about you is that you bring people to Jesus, you witness to people, you pray for lost people, you invite them to church, you share the gospel with them, all of that, all of that. Not just one of those things, but all of those things. And so we see the compassionate comrades of the cripple. Let me ask you this, and I'm trying to get off this, but I don't think the Holy Spirit's going to let me just yet. Do you have lost friends and family members? Sure you do. I do. Could it be said of us that we're compassionate comrades, that we're faithful friends? Or do we just let our friends walk in sin and we don't say anything to them about it? Something to think about, most certainly. Now, not only the compassionate comrades, and we saw their devotion, their dilemma, and their determination, but now we come to a big theological point. The crucial question concerning Christ, and this is in verse 21, the crucial question concerning Christ, the crucial question concerning Christ. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, in verse 21, the Pharisees begin to ask a question of Christ. Let's read that again to refresh your memory. And the scribes and Pharisees begin to reason, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And so their question, who is this? that can forgive sins but God alone. So they are asking a crucial question concerning Christ. Now, why is it a crucial question? Well, because, first of all, their questions were not wrong. It, it is very true that only God can forgive sin. And if somebody says they can forgive sin but they cannot forgive sin, then yes, technically that would be blasphemy. You see, this was a question of Christ's identity. The Pharisees and scribes asked a good question. Only God can forgive sins. For example, in Isaiah 43, 25, God claims the right to forgive sins as he states, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions. Therefore, if Jesus is claiming to be able to forgive sins, then he is claiming to be God. Now we see where the rubber meets the road. And so this crucial question concerning Christ was a question of Christ's identity. 
and we know that Jesus is God, but he's about to prove it. Second of all, it was a question of Christ's morality, not just his identity, but his morality. Because if he could not forgive sins, then he was lying. You say, well, big deal. Well, it's a huge deal because he claimed to be sinless. The Messiah was to be sinless. And if he said something that wasn't true, that would be a lie. And one lie is a sin. And so it's a, it's a question of Christ's morality. Was he lying? Was he telling the truth? Finally, it's a question of Christ's ability. Could he heal this man? I mean, he says he can. He, he says he can forgive sins. And now the time has come to prove his ability will uh, prove and sustain his identity and his morality. He's claimed to be God. Now he's got to prove it. And so this, their questions about Christ, first of all, they were good questions. They weren't wrong. And second of all, they were crucial, man. They were crucial questions concerning Christ. Concerning what? Concerning Christ's identity. Is he God? Is the, the son of man, right? His morality, is he a liar? And finally, his ability, can he do it? Now we come to the climax, the all, uh, the ending of the story, how it shakes out, if you will. So we see not only the crucial question concerning Christ, but beginning in verse 22 and into verse 25, the conversion of the cripple. Finally, we come to the resolution of the story. Christ's ability, identity, and morality are all intact. Why? He heals the crippled man, and immediately the crippled man gets up and walks off. However, apart from healing, which isn't the point of the story in this place, we need to consider the conversion of the crippled man. Jesus first said, your sins are forgiven. Then the question was asked by the Pharisees, who can forgive sins? You see, the emphasis was not on the miracle, but on salvation. The emphasis was on the conversion of the crippled man. Jesus knew that though the man was crippled, his far greater need was that he was lost and did not know Christ. Uh, make him walk, that's fine. But what good is that if he walks right into hell? He needed to have his sins forgiven. And ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, just like the crippled man, we have a great need. And that need cannot be satisfied with perfect health. That need cannot be satisfied with abundant wealth. That need can only be satisfied by a person. And his name is Jesus Christ. In a spiritual sense, we see every man in the crippled man. That we are lost. That we cannot come to Jesus on our own. But Jesus must come to us through the witness of the word. And of course, though it's not explicitly mentioned here, by the Holy Spirit. The conversion of the crippled man. In conclusion, are we compassionate towards our comrades, as it were? Do we invite them to Christ? Do we care? Secondly, Christ 
is the only one that can forgive sins. And because he can forgive sins and proved it by making crippled people stop being crippled, just to put this as plain as I can, Christ is God. You put him beside every other religious figure in the universe, and he is the only one who claimed to be God and then proved it by doing things that only God can do. Ladies and gentlemen, you have the story. Christ converts the cripple at Capernaum. You saw the sections of the story, the context of the cripple's conversion. What about the context? Well, the place, the people, the power. You saw the compassionate comrades of the cripple. Why were they compassionate? Well, we noted their devotion, their dilemma, and their determination. Number three, you saw the crucial question concerning Christ. Well, why was it such a big deal? Because it was a question of Christ's identity, Christ's morality, and Christ's ability. And then finally, we saw the conversion of the cripple. Oh, yeah, he was healed. But greater than that, he was forgiven. And though you may have needs, and we all have got needs, your greatest need is to be forgiven of your sins. God bless you. Keep studying the book of Luke.